my wife and I would, we don't do it as much now, but in the past we would, on the last day of the year, the old year or the beginning of the new year, we would write down on a piece of paper all the things that God had taught us or done in our lives in the previous year. Some of the things that, you know, God did in us personally, but also in our family. And it was just, it was a good time of reflection, but we would also take another piece of paper and write down the, na- the number of the new year, for example, 2017, and say, what is it we want God to do in our lives, in our marriage, in our church, in our children, in this new year? It was an exercise that sometimes is somewhat painful, <laughs> depending on your past year. But it was an exercise in which we were forced to look backwards and also look forward. Now, looking to the past and looking to the future, that's what I want to do with you today. I want us to look backwards and I want us to look forward. I want to look to the past. I want to look to the future. But I want to do it through the Lord's Supper. Because as you think about the Lord's Supper, well, let me ask you this. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when the bread and the cup is being distributed, where does your mind go, honestly? Do you begin to think about the football game? Do you think about the things you have to do this afternoon? Do you think about your work week that's coming up? Ah, where does your mind go? My concern for us is that when we come to the Lord's table, that we should be considering its meaning, its significance. And part of its significance, as we look at its multiple dimensions, there's a part in which we look backwards. We look to the past. But we'll see in verse 26 of this chapter, there's a part that forces us to look to the future. And that's what I want us to do this morning, I, th- I just thought of it is how appropriate that on this first day of 2017, as we reflect on the past and think about what God has in store, us, in store for us in the future, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper and how good it is to think about what Jesus has done for us in the past, in His death for us, but also what He's going to do in the future when He returns. Oh, this is, this is really exciting. And I was listening and, and reading uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And, and, and so his, this outline that I'm giving to you today is his outline. So I, I give him credit. You know, I, and, so, and, and I think it's a helpful way of looking at this verse 26. And he talks about how in this verse, what we see is we look at the significance of the Lord's Supper. We see a proclamation, an anticipation, and a repetition. It's a great, it's a great way of remembering. So when you think about the Lord's Supper, what we do this morning, what we do every month, as you take the bread, as you take the cup, as you give it to someone else, I want you to be thinking, proclamation, anticipation, repetition. Don't let your mind wander somewhere else where it ought not to be. I know that's hard. So think with me. What does it mean, the significance of the Lord's Supper's proclamation? Now, let me just step back for a moment. Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, and it's a, a church that's filled with troubles, right? The part that Jeff read earlier 
in this chapter. What was going on? I mean, you know the church in Corinth has all kinds of division, all kinds of infighting. And when it came to the Lord's Supper, they really made a mess of it. All right? People were going hungry. They were having, uh, some people were coming. They weren't getting any food in this meal. All right? People were getting drunk. People were being despised and humiliated. And Paul says, no, no, you cannot be doing this. So he has to take them back to the teaching of the Lord with regard to the table of the Lord. And that's what he's doing. And so he says in verses 24 and 25, when he recalls Jesus' words of institution, he says that we're to remember... He says, do this in remembrance of me, right? He says, we're to remember the past. Remember what? That Jesus gave his body at the cross. We're to remember that Jesus shed his blood at the cross of Calvary. So when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are to remember his death. Something that happened in the past. And on another occasion, not today, I'll dig in a little deeper on what it means to remember. All right? Because I think there's a little bit of confusion about that. But right now, and for today, think about this. That as we remember his death in the past, Paul says in verse 26 that we are actually doing something actively, presently. And that is we're proclaiming We're proclaiming. As we remember something that happened in the past, in the present, we are proclaiming His death. Now, don't you find that interesting in verse 26 when he says that? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Now, that word proclaim is a word that Paul customarily uses with the proclamation of the gospel. And it means simply to declare, to announce. So here we are, we distribute the bread and the cup, and when we do, we are announcing, we are declaring, we are heralding the gospel. Right? In a sense, we're heralding the gospel itself. Now, you know that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we never do it apart from the preaching of the Word. So you have the Word preached, and now, attached to it in God's condescending love and mercy, He says, I'm going to give you a sign, because sometimes we need signs, don't we not? We need outward forms, we need visible things, because our our trust in the Lord is weak and it needs to be strengthened. And He says, here's a sign. I'm going to attach to the preached Word this dramatized gospel in the bread and in the cup. That's a kindness of God. So Paul's point in, in telling us is, is in the Lord's Supper, the gospel is dramatized for us. So as we give, I give to, to the elders and to those who distribute, and you give the, the bread and the cup to one another, you pass it to one another, you are proclaiming, you are declaring the Lord's death for sinners like us. Now, generally when we talk about death, it's like a funeral experience, right? But the Lord's Supper is not a funeral. All right? Is that clear? We've all been to funerals. We are not saying, we are not declaring to one another, 
you know what? It's really sad that Jesus died. He died when he was really young. It was really unfair. You know, it's just a horrible thing that happened back then. That's, that's not what we're declaring to each other. We're not grieving, right? As we do might in a, a funeral. We're not mourning for Jesus' death. Not as we come to the Lord's table. And we ought to grieve about our, for our sin, yes. No. We are proclaiming the meaning of his past death. Now, four big words. To understand the death of Jesus, I'm going to give you four big theological words that you can use to give substance to what it means to proclaim the Lord's death. All right? Don't be frightened by these words. You've heard them before. I'm going to repeat them. I'm going to say them fast. And you see them behind me, right? I think they're there, right? Propitiation, justification, reconciliation, and redemption. When we say that, and the scriptures say that we are proclaiming the Lord's death, we are, we are saying that, that Jesus, when He died on the cross, He did so for the propitiation of God's wrath. Propitiation simply means to turn away, to appease the wrath of a person. In this case, the wrath of God. The blood of Jesus propitiates, turns away God's wrath. So, So you understand that God is angry with sin and sinners, right? And God's holy wrath is not poured out on us who deserve it, but it was poured out on Jesus at the cross. So he cries out to the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the wrath of God. So you know what this means when you take the bread and the cup. He's saying, Hey, look, take it, take it, because God is no longer angry with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Oh, you know how hard it is if, especially last night, you really committed a doozy and you feel condemned and you go, surely God is angry with me. No, the death of Christ says that God's wrath has been propitiated. Judgment no longer on you because it's fallen on Jesus. Oh, but, the, but it's more. It's the death of Jesus that we proclaim signifies our justification. And you've heard that term a lot more. And it means that we are declared not guilty. We who are sinners are not guilty of our sin. We are declared to be righteous in a right standing with God. Why? Because Jesus took upon Himself our guilt as He bore our sin at the cross. And Jesus gave us what? His righteousness, His holy life. That wonderful exchange so that we are truly justified by His grace as a gift, as Paul says in Romans 3.24. But not only that, we're reconciled as reconciliation. His death, as Paul says in Colossians, His death on the cross and His shedding of blood on the cross was what made peace between us and God. And Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Do you know, 
intellectually, we get it, don't we? I understand that I'm reconciled to God. But you know what I need pressed into my soul after I sin? Not only that God's not angry with me, just simply not angry with me, but that God loves me and He's for me and He wants to be with me. Do you understand that God saying in here, there is peace. He's, I delight in you. Do you believe that? Sometimes it's simply too good to be true. Intellectually we grasp it. But that God actually delights in me. And then he views me as the apple of his eye. That's a little too much for my soul sometimes. Ah, but it doesn't stop there. He says the death of Christ signifies redemption. The main idea in redemption has to do with us being enslaved, trapped in sin. And don't you ever feel that? That you've been wrestling with sin, you're trapped in it, and you try to get out of it. You tried in 2016, and you hope 2017 you'll be free of your bad habits and your sinful habits. But the redemptive work of Jesus says, you who've been enslaved to sin, who've been held hostage to sin, because you know that Paul... The Apostle Paul and the Bible tells us that sin is not only transgression against God, but sin is also described, what, as a tyrannical master who has held us in this slavery and from whom we cannot escape. And the way that redemption works is somebody else has to come and pay the price, offer the sacrifice to release us from this enslavement. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You are free. He says, you've been freed from sin's dominion. Now, take all that. The meaning of the death of Jesus that we proclaim as we distribute the bread and the cup. You see, brothers and sisters, this is not something for you not to think about. You've got to think about this. There is one exception if you don't sin anymore. So let him who is without sin not think about this. I'll see you in glory, because I expect that's where you're going next. Can I encourage you to do something today as as we celebrate the Lord's table? As you take the bread and give it to the person next to you, as you take the tray of juice and wine and give it to the person next to you, will you speak? Will you not be quiet, but rather speak this? As you take the bread, say, The body of Christ given for you. As you take the cup, say, The blood of Christ shed for you. 
Do you understand what privilege that is as you minister to one another, as we commune with Jesus, but commune with one another? That you can say to the other person, you know what Jesus has done for you, you who believe? He has made you right with God. He's no longer angry with you. He sees you as precious in His sight. He loves you. You are His delight. He has freed you from sin. He's yours. Take Him. Take Him. We are to remember the past, his past death, and proclaim it to one another. But there's a future element that leads us to the second point of anticipation. Paul writes in verse 26, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. So we're to think about his second coming. And how appropriate, right? As Advent, we celebrated his first coming. And now we're, we're pushed to think about his second coming. This ought not to surprise us that the Lord would include in the celebration of the Lord's Supper this forward dimension pushing us to think about his coming again. Why? Because when Jesus initially established the Lord's Supper... And we call the Lord's Supper. And he did so, for example, we see in Luke 22, during the Passover meal. He told his disciples, I will not eat with you again, and I will not drink all right, the fruit of the vine again until, until, what? Until the kingdom comes. Until the kingdom comes. Jesus is saying, look, the day will come. When the kingdom, my kingdom, is fully and firmly established in all its totality and glory. And when that day comes and I come back and show you the finality and the consummation of that kingdom, at that point, I'm going to eat with you again and I'm going to drink with you again. Wow, that's amazing. And I wonder if the disciples got that. I probably wouldn't have gotten it. Because I would have been so, you know, so concerned about Jesus talking about his dying. So right in the midst of the Lord's Supper, we're called to look to the future, to his return again. Why? The significance of his coming again is just is vast. And I can't say anything, but just let me say a few things about that, about what it means that he that he says. Paul writes here, until he comes, until he comes, or Jesus says, you know, that he'll eat and drink when the kingdom has come. I imagine the disciples, when they heard Jesus say this, you know, maybe it didn't make much sense, but Jesus understood that he was going to die the next day. He was going to be crucified. But for him to say that he's going to eat and drink with them again, he knew that he would be raised up from the dead. He knew that death would not swallow him completely. He knew that he would be raised, that he would be exalted, and that he would come back one day. Do you understand? Just as surely as Jesus came the first time, he's coming again. Oh, and I need to know that. I need to know that because sometimes if I don't live with that certainty of He's coming again, what hope do I have? How does it affect your life knowing that He's coming again? 
And you know, his coming again also means that it marks the consummation. When he returns, it marks the consummation, the fulfillment of his redemptive purpose. All that means is that everything that Jesus initiated, everything that he purposed and designed by his death and resurrection will be accomplished. Will be fully accomplished. Will be completely done. How many of you make New Year's resolutions and willing to admit it? <laughs> Not many. That's interesting. Oh, either that or you're all liars. If you ever have in the past made a resolution, and I see this all the time in Planet Fitness, uh, January, there are a billion people in Planet Fitness. <laughs> February, half a billion. March, 20. Uh, it just, <laughs> everybody makes these resolutions, right? Los propósitos para nuevo año. You know? And they never complete them. They never fulfill them. In Spain, in Malaga, Spain, let me show you, if you go to the next slide, uh, there's a cathedral there called uh, Nuestra Señora de la Encarnación, Our Lady of Incarnation. This cathedral uh, was constructed, they commenced the construction in uh, 1528, and they stopped the construction in 1782, so over 250 years. Now, it is nicknamed La Manca or La Manquita. Now, why? Manca or Manco is one hand or one armed. It means there's, there's something is not finished. You only have one when you ought to have two. If you notice on that cathedral, on the right-hand side, there should be another tower. <laughs> All right? That's why they call it La Manca, La Manquita. Over 250 years of construction work, and it, you know what? They will never finish this. It will never, ever be finished. It will always remain like this. But not so the work of Jesus. Not so the work of Jesus. And that phrase that Paul gives us in verse 26, until He comes, is teaching us and pressing upon us that what Jesus commenced in His life, but also what He endured at the cross, the experience of the travail of His soul, His dying at the cross, that the purpose of His death and the suffering... It will not be in vain. In other words, what Jesus has started, He will complete in your life. And do you need to know that? Do you need to know that child of God? Yes, you do. Oh, how we need to be filled with this hope that what God has started in us, He will complete. He will not fall short in what He has done. Is He going to make you and conform you to the image of the Son? Of course He is. Is He going to fail in that? No, He won't. Will one day you be holy? Yes, you will. Will one day you be perfectly transformed? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. He will finish what He has begun. He will not be frustrated. He will not be called La Manca or El Manco. <laughs> you know, one of the things that Paul makes very clear in Ephesians 5, 25-27, and husbands, 
you've read this many times. When Paul says to you husbands, to me, love your wife like Christ loved the church. How he gave himself up for the church. Do you remember the rest of that? Paul is telling us there in Ephesians 5 that his death, his giving himself up at the cross, had a purpose that's not going to be frustrated. And that purpose is that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The phrase, until he comes, means that you and I, who have been saved, not just as an individual, but saved to be a part of a church, a bride, that we, that Jesus Jesus is working in us by His Spirit and His Word. And that one day, one day, this work of making us beautiful will be completed. The day, think about this, brothers and sisters. The day will come when you and I will not struggle with sin anymore. You know what? The day will come when you won't want to sin anymore. Will you even recognize yourself Will you recognize who you are without any sin, any desire of sin, but perfectly holy and glorious and beautiful and transfigured by the glory of God? I can't even imagine what I'll be like. And the day's coming. And the day's coming. And as we take the bread and the cup, we are to remember not only what He's done for us in the past and the truth of His death, but how He's going to finish that which He's begun at the cross. And He's going to come back gloriously and majestically because then, then, we will be gloriously, beautifully transformed. We will as He is. See Him face to face. So that's why that's why John writes in Revelation 19 6-9 he says Hallelujah. For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is a righteous deeds of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the day comes... There'll be no more Lord's Supper celebrations. What we do here is simply a rehearsal. Uh, how many of you, you got married, you have a wedding rehearsal? Some of you did. Some of us wanted to, but we couldn't because of a hurricane, <laughs> in my case. But some of you have a wedding rehearsal. The day or two later, you have the wedding. Let me ask you, do you keep on wanting to have the rehearsal after the wedding? No. There's no more need for the rehearsal. Because now, now, there's no more need when you see Jesus face to face. There's no more need for this. 
Because these are signs and emblems that point to the reality of having communion with Jesus. Then the day will come, you'll see Him face to face, and no, there will be no more Lord's Supper table. There will be a marriage supper. The marriage supper with Jesus and His bride, the church. But we're not there yet, are we? They're not there yet. And so, this last point, repetition. The repetition of the Lord's Supper because we're not yet there. Because Jesus has not yet come back. So, the beginning of verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. As often as you eat and drink. So, it's talking about something that we do continuously, that we do repeatedly. It doesn't tell us how often, and there have been a lot of debates about how often one ought to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But we know this. It should be celebrated continuously until Jesus receives us to Himself. And it's a reminder to you and to me that we still struggle with sin, that we still live in a fallen world, that we're not yet home. We're not yet home. It's kind of weird to think about it, but right? Every time we have the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder we're not home yet. He's coming for me. He's coming for us. And then we'll be home. But meanwhile, you and I have a need to be spiritually strengthened. We need the Word, and we need these emblems, these signs. Let me, let me put it to you this way. My grandson, when he gets, he gets a little older, he'll come to my lap, hopefully, and he won't be afraid of me. And he'll say, Abuelo, do, do you love me? You know, I, I could sit him in a chair, put him in front of me, and I'll sit across from him. He says, Jeremiah, I love you. Uh, let's say if he's four years old. All right? I guess I'm not too sure if he'll appreciate that. But you know what would be a lot different? If I went to him and I embraced him, I hugged him, and I told him that I loved him, and I gave him kisses, and I gave him a present, because sometimes people of God, I need the word, and then I need the hug. I, I need to feel it. I need to see it. That's the way we love one another. Do you understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That He didn't speak it to us, but He gave us these emblems, these signs, so that you and I, who struggle to believe that we're loved, says, look, you're really loved. Look, here, take, eat, and drink. It's real. Touch it. Eat it. God is so good to us. He knows what we need. And He feeds us who are hungry. So it's an occasion for us to say, as we hold the bread and drink the cup, to say, Lord, I need You. I need You today. I need Your presence. I need Your strength. I need Your power. I need Your wisdom. I need Your comfort. I need Your forgiveness. I need You. Do you when you hold the bread, do you say that? You say, I need You. Feed me. I'm concerned. Sometimes I meet Christians who make very little, who just ignore the Lord's Supper altogether. 
And then there are some Christians who say, you know what, if we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a year, that's a good enough. You know, sometimes if, you, if you've ever heard people talk about this, they say, well, yeah, let's just celebrate the Lord's Supper once a year because we don't want it to become routine. Um, we don't want it to stop being special. But that logic is, is poor at best. Think about it for a moment. If you ever say, well, I don't want the Lord's Supper to stop being special, so let's just celebrate it once a year. Ask yourself this, can Jesus ever stop being special to you? As one pastor said, try saying this to your best friend or your spouse. You know, I really love you so much, and I want our relationship that's special. I want it to continue to be special. Will this arrange to meet again next year? Next year we'll meet, okay? Because I want it to be special. You don't say that to people that you love. I suspect that when people say this or they have a view in which they say, you know, I really don't need to participate in the Lord's table. I suspect it's because they have a deficient view of Jesus. Right? They probably have a view of Jesus in which Jesus is viewed as a set of doctrines, a set of beliefs, a creed. Because if you view Jesus as a set of beliefs and doctrines, you can say, oh, I understand this doctrine, I understand these beliefs, these tenets, I'm okay, let's move on to the next one. But Jesus is not simply a creed, he's not simply a set of doctrine, he is a person. He is a person, a crucified, risen, exalted to the right hand of God, a returning person with whom we have communion. Is that true for you? Is that how you think about Jesus? I need the Word preached. I need the Word dramatized. And so do you. Because I get easily distracted. Because I sin. And the hardest thing in my life is to get out of the guilt and shame of my sin. And I need to be reminded and remember His death. And He's coming back to finish what He started. When we pass the bread and the cup today to one another, I want you to think about this. You and I do not know what goes on in the life of that other person, most likely. You're going to give the bread and the cup to another person and you don't know what sin is going on in their heart. You don't know how they're struggling in their lives. You don't know what shame they're trying to get out from under. You don't know what guilt is burdening their soul. You don't know any of that. But you know, you know this, that there's sin in their lives. This you know, that that is true. And you know they need Jesus. And so you give the bread, you give the cup. And imagine the person that is receiving the bread and the cup from you. Imagine the person saying to you as they reach out their hands to take the tray of bread and the cup of wine, saying to you, tell me, tell me about Jesus. Tell me what Jesus has done for me. Tell me because I'm struggling with sin. Tell me it's going to be okay. Tell me it is well with my soul. 
Please tell me. You see, that's why we cannot be thinking about other things. We're sinners desperately clinging to a Savior who has purchased us for Himself, who's coming back. But in the meantime, we proclaim to one another Jesus' death. And maybe you who received the tray can say to the person who's saying to you, the body of Christ given for you, say, tell me, tell me. Brandon is going to pray for us, then we'll come to the table of the Lord. But it's a time for us to get right with God, confess our sin, ask the Spirit to teach us, to feed us.